0: Romans chapter 11, we ended last week there as we were talking about verse 25, and let's pray. Lord, speak to us, we pray, as we look at these verses tonight and conclude this chapter 11, that you'd show us great and mighty things that we know not of, in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, as he says a number of times in the New Testament, he desires that we're not ignorant, of this mystery. Now, it is a quite marvelous mystery. And again, it didn't come upon the Lord at the end like he was surprised. It was something that he knew about all along concerning the Jews. He knew that the Jews would reject him as the Messiah. It's written about thousands of years before it happened. And the Bible says that those people who were not his people, who did not seek him, they still would be sought by God. God would seek them, and then they would turn to God, referring to the Gentiles. Now, how did this happen? By the Jews rejecting the Messiah, the Lord went, therefore, to the Gentiles to open the door of salvation unto them. And so he says, so who are the Jews? Are they cast off? No, he doesn't want us to be ignorant. There's... Ignorant people today to say, well, God's finished with the Jews. The church has replaced the Jews. No, the church hasn't. If you go back and look at the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unto and King David, all through the major and the minor prophets, you'll find the word forever used continually. I will make a covenant with them forever. I will give them the land forever. I will be their God. They will be my people forever. And so God's... Constructing the time, as we read in Daniel chapter 9, that until the Messiah, the Prince would come, would be 483 years. And then the Messiah, the Prince, would be cut off. And then there would be a parenthesis of time that just sort of time is standing still. And that's right now. A parenthesis of time where the Gentiles are coming in. And then there'll be one more seven years that God will deal with Israel as a nation. It says all of Israel will be saved. And so we're not ignorant of this. We know the book of Daniel. We have the teachings of Jesus out of Matthew and Mark and Luke concerning these things. And Paul now is going into detail and he's saying this is is marvelous. That God would open the door to the Gentiles. Now, does that mean the Gentiles get all prideful going, oh yeah, God opened the door to us and He shut it to the Jews because you know, they rejected the Messiah and so forth. No, we're the wild olive branch that has been grafted in, but we're going to be plucked back out and the natural branch is going to be grafted back in, he told us as we looked at last week there in Romans 11. That this is just for a period of time and we rejoice in this period of time. And he says, so the hardening or the blinding in part has happened to Israel. So right now, typically, Jews will not receive the Messiah. You go to Israel and it's just unbelievable. It's just so hard for them to look at the facts and not see that the Messiah had to have already come. You know, the Jewish Bible doesn't work if you don't have a temple, if you don't have priests, if you don't sacrifice. The Old Testament doesn't work. You might as well throw it away. But yet the Jews today, they just harden their hearts and they say, well, the Day of Atonement now is just the day that we say, do our goods outweigh our bads? And if so, then the week of Unleavened Bread, we just go out and, and we just try to do more goods to compensate for our bads. Where is that in the Bible? It's nowhere in the Bible. They're making this up because they have to make something up because their Bible is worthless. Unless you have one of two things, you have a priest, you have the temple, you have the sacrificial system set up in Jerusalem, or you have the Messiah. Well, you go back and say, well, when did the sacrificial system stop? 70 AD, when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and the Jews were scattered throughout the world. Well, you say, did anything significant happen since then? How about the dating system of the world? How did we get 70 A.D.? Because 70 years before that, Jesus Christ was born into this world. And in 33 A.D., the whole world, as Paul told the Roman emperor uh, or the governor, he said to to, uh, Festus, he said, as you know, or Agrippa, he said unto Agrippa there in, in, in Acts, he says, as you know, this has not been done in a corner. Everybody in the world knows about it. That Jesus Christ came and died, and his followers claim that he rose again. If he didn't raise again, then what would happen to his body? And that's a whole teaching on the resurrection. That just, if you put the case in court, Jesus Christ had to have risen from the dead. There's no other option. And so, to Jews today, they know that their Messiah has to come from the lineage of Judah. But the Jews have been scattered now for almost 2,000 years, and they've lost their tribal identity to the degree that they could prove it. Now, God knows whose tribe they're from. And in the tribulation period, He'll revive that supernaturally. Somehow He'll let them know, because we know there's 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, That becomes witnesses, the 144,000 is talked about in Revelation. But for right now, the Jews cannot prove. If you go back to the book of Ezra, they had to prove their lineage. And if they could not prove it, they were kicked out of Jerusalem and kicked out of the Promised Land. They could have no part nor portion with the children of Israel. How could they prove that the Messiah came from the lineage of Judah? He can't come. The Messiah had to have come before 70 A.D., Did anybody claim to be inside? Is there anything significant that happened? It's so clear. But, you see, the Jews, as smart as they are, as intellectually and educated as they are, blindness has happened in part, and they cannot see the obvious. It's supernatural. It's spiritual. That's why I take my hat off to those who are ministering to the Jews, they have a really tough, tough business because they're working against this spiritual principle of blindness that's already come. And that's also why we don't sink a lot of money into Jewish evangelism. I love the Jews. God bless the Jews. I still believe Genesis 12 stands. Those who bless the Jews will be blessed. Those who curse the Jews will be cursed. I know no way I want to curse them. But at the same time, I know right now the fishing is in the Gentiles. There'll be another fishing trip with the Jews later on. But right now, the mass amount of fishing is going to be done amongst the Gentiles. And that's where the main population of salvation is going to come at this dispensation of time. How long? It says there, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now this concept, the fullness of the Gentiles, it's interesting because if you look over in Luke chapter 21, you do want to look there. Turn with me over to the left a few pages to Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 21. And there, verse 24. Jesus talking on the end times and talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He prophesies the 70 AD destruction. And then in verse 24, and he says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles, notice, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, some say that, oh, this prophecy has been fulfilled and that Jerusalem has now been recaptured by the Jews. And as you know, the Jewish capital that didn't happen for over two, two, almost 2,000 years, Jews did not have Jerusalem as their capital. Now 2,000 years later, in 1967, they take Jerusalem again. And now it's their capital. And so they say, yeah, the Jews now have it. But if you look at Jerusalem as a whole, it is still very much trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. You go to the Mount area where the temple once was and you'll find a muslim mosque there you'll find it there militantly held by gentiles much of the city is owned by gentiles by catholics and the greek orthodox church owns large sections of it and so although jews may have their capital there the jews very or the gentiles very much are trotting underfoot. And you'll find more Gentiles today in Jerusalem area than you will find Jews almost anywhere in Israel. And so really the fulfillment of this is gonna be at the rapture of the church. At the rapture of the church when there's that last Gentile that gets saved. Maybe it'll happen tonight here at Calvary Chapel San Diego. Somebody that came that didn't know the Lord and You'll come to know the Lord. And at that moment when that last person says, Lord Jesus, come into my life, immediately, in a twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be caught up to be together with the Lord. Now, doesn't that make you want to go out and witness? (laughs) Go out and find that one last Gentile that's going to be saved. And then the time of the Gentiles will have come in. Now, Jesus concerning this time... says in verse 29 of Luke 21 there, Luke chapter 21 verse 29, and he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer now is near. So you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will uh, pass away, but by My words will by no means pass away. In verse 34, But take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life, and the day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now I'm not going to teach all of Luke chapter 21 or Matthew chapter 24 tonight. But you know the signs that the Lord clearly was talking about. One big one was Israel becoming a nation again. As he prophesies. oh, in Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Jeremiah, how Israel would be scattered, but they would come back as a nation again. And of course, the time that Paul is writing, Israel is still a nation, but yet in 70 AD they'd be scattered, and they didn't come back as a nation until... 1948, but that was only in Tel Aviv area. But then in 1967, they were able to take a large portion of Israel in that seven-day war, and they were able to take Jerusalem once again. And I believe that was the dating. 1967 is the dating of, this generation shall not pass away. But if you look in the Bible, the generation could be 20 years, 40 years, 70 years, 80 years, or 120 years. But I just say, look at the generation of today. It's about 70, 75 years. But in its strictest sense, a generation would be 40 years. Unless you look at Genesis chapter 15, then it was 100 years. That's the one I forgot. So, yeah, in 20 years, 40 years, 70 years, 80 years, 100 years, or 120 years, all those are counted as generations within the sphere of the Old Testament as you read it. So sometime, I, I do believe that that last Gentile is alive on earth today. I believe the Antichrist is alive on the earth today. I do believe we're very, very, very close to uh, that rapture of the church and the coming of the Lord. I do believe the time of the Gentiles is just about fulfilled. And then at that point, we'll begin the tribulation period where God's going to go to work saving all of Israel. And he says there, in verse 26, going back to Romans now, chapter 11. So all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and He will return away ungodliness from Jacob for this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so... Turn over to Zechariah, he mentions this, that there is going to be a point where the children of Israel, they realize what they have done. For many of the Jews, it will be in that three and a half year period, in the tribulation period. You see, almost immediately after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist, who will probably see him beginning to take his position authority and power we'll see the one world economy the one which has been talked about in magazines continually this last year the one world religion and then the one world military power and i think that's pretty well intact already with the un forces it's already set up for one man to take dominance there the one world economy is just about there and then the one world religion he'll set up and they will basically say he'll say to worship him But he'll go to work and he's going to set up to rebuild the Jewish temple. And in that three and a half year period, he's going to set on the holiest of holies and proclaim himself to be God. And at that point, Jewish eyes are going to be open uh, to what they have done. And there in chapter 12 of Zechariah, there in verse 10 It says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then in chapter 13, verse 6 of Zechariah, and someone will say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And so there's going to be a clear time where they realize that they indeed put to death the Messiah and that for their sins the Messiah was pierced and bruised and beaten. And at that point they will be broken. And it will be in that tribulation period. There will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, very anointed, very powerfully. And they'll be going throughout the world preaching. And they'll be clearly teaching out of the book of Revelation, mostly. And telling them, hey, this world leader, he's, he's Satan incarnate. And he's getting ready to set him, and people won't believe him. They'll be persecuted. They'll be put to death. But then finally, and they've been preaching that three and a half year period, all of Israel, when that Antichrist sits there, on the holies of holies, only where the high priest was to go once a year, and says, I am God. Boom. The eyes are going to open up. The Jews will be praying, those believing Jews will be praying in those first three and a half years, as he talks about in Matthew 24, praying it won't be in winter, praying that they won't be pregnant, praying that it won't be on the Sabbath, because again, the Antichrist is going to, at that point, retaliate, and is going to become the new Hitler, and say, you rejected me, as all Israel will reject him, and just going to start a mass slaughter of the Jews. Their only protection is to make it to a rock city of Petra, which is over in Jordan today. It's about 90 miles from Jerusalem. So if it's on the Sabbath, you see, they'll have strict laws. If you're riding a bike or driving in a car, they'll machine gun you down. They do that today in Israel, in the old city area, on the Sabbath from Friday night sun, sundown to Saturday night sundown, they have people there with machine guns and their signs and and if you break the Sabbath, they will shoot you down. It's like that now. So, um, again though, the whole nation will be that way. And so pray it's not on the Sabbath because you're going to have to take off on foot trying to get through those deserts. It's going to be tough. Pray that you're not pregnant or with a baby. it would be really tough. Pray it's not in the winter. You're going to have to Go through the cold and the snow it's going to be tough so um, but then at that point God begins to pour out his wrath for three and a half years that last three and a half year period decimating the earth and uh, and then finally that last and final battle of Armageddon and the Lord will come back and replenish the earth with those believers the majority of them Jews and from there he'll repopulate the earth for a thousand years as we will rule and reign with him um, On the earth. And then also in Isaiah chapter fifty. Isaiah chapter fifty. Isaiah chapter fifty nine. Sorry about that. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20 and 21. It says, The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those who turn from the transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My Spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. So God has put in their mouth, put in their heart, that He has a covenant with them. They've broken their covenant with God, but God says, I have a covenant with you. And my covenant with you is with you and with your descendants who don't even know me and with their descendants who don't even know me. And their descendants who are rejecting me. I still have my covenant towards them that says, I'm not going to give up on them. I'm not going to stop because I have chosen them. And in verse 28, this is his entire concept. So concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. So very practically, right now, the Jews hate Christians. You Go over to Israel and you'll find that they indeed hate Christians. They don't appreciate Christians there. The guides will put up with us because they need our money as they give us tours and so forth. But they are enemies. And of course, at this time, they were killing the Christians as Paul also had once done. Jesus said, they'll put you to death thinking they're doing God's service as they killed Stephen, uh, that deacon in the church. They stoned him to death and so forth. So they're not for us, they're very much against us, but it's easy for us to say, fine, I'll be against you, Jews. And he's saying, stop, you're wrong, don't have that attitude. Every time I go to Israel, I come back going, those stinking Jews, they're just the most unloving, unkind They are the most difficult people I've ever been with in my entire life. I mean, they are just difficult people. And then I come back and I have to read to say God loves them, so I need to love them, you know. Don't want to curse those Jews, want to bless them, but they are very, very difficult people. And so we could simply say, well, they're treating me bad, I'll treat them bad. And we go, nope. They are God's special treasure. They're the Lord's special treasure. So, I see somebody with a spoiled brat little kid, and I'm looking at him going, "Mm, little kid's a brat, you know. Love to pick him up and put him on my knee right now, you know. But the mom or the dad comes in, and this little kid's just perfect, can't do anything wrong. It's like, hey... (laughs) like to enlighten you exactly what a brat your kid is but then my kids a brat and i can't see it they're just the perfect most wonderful kid you see i just love my kid it's great you know he broke a window got a great arm doesn't he you know that's a little window that's tough to hit, you know i bet you couldn't do it you know so you have that attitude. And so we've got to realize, yeah, Israel is a brat. Israel is rebellious. They've rejected their Messiah, but Dad still loves them. Dad still wants them. And so we have to come in and say, we need to love them because God loves them and we need to love them. They're a special, special treasure unto God. The Jewish people are a special treasure to the Lord. They are the elect of God. Turn over, if you would, to a couple of passages. Look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. Well, actually, we've got to go back up to verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for the land which you see I give to you and your descendants for how long? Forever. So, the Palestinians are over there going, it's our land. I say God said the final word on it. (laughs) It's Abraham and his descendants' land forever. Also, take a look at Joshua chapter 14, verse 9. Joshua chapter 14, verse 9. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance, your children's, forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So God clearly says that these are my people, this is their land forever. Turn over to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 20. And David here says, Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant, verse 21 for your word's sake, listen to this, for your word's sake, because you proclaimed it God, you were going to make it happen, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard from our ears. And who is like your people like Israel? The one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, to do for you great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from the nations and their gods, for you have made your people Israel, your very own people, for how long? Forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. There's a lot of other great verses I've written down here tonight. But we won't look at them, but you might want to take a look at Ezra chapter three verse eleven, and Psalms chapter thirty-seven, verse twenty-eight. Says in Ezra three eleven that his mercies are forever for Israel, and Psalms thirty-seven verse twenty-eight says he preserves Israel forever. So what's happening on the scene right now? Interesting. New Year's Eve. I'm going to go into great detail on the world situation, what's happening, where I think things are going to be going here in the very near future. But on the scope right now, you know the Palestinians have been sort of in, on hold for a long time, living in a very difficult situation. The Palestinian government, uh, their their third covenant is to annihilate Israel. And of course, Clinton is saying, let's have a peace treaty, even with that there. And he's saying, you guys really need to get rid of that. And they're discussing that, but it's not just them. It's once he gets past Arafat, then he has uh, the Liberation Army and and other groups as well that have to agree to take that out of the covenant, which it's not going to happen. They live to annihilate Israel. That's one of the main reasons they're alive. We're alive for freedom. They're alive to annihilate Israel. That's (laughs) their reason for existence. And they want... Israel and the UN to force them to give them some of their land so they can get stronger and more prosperous. So why? They can annihilate Israel. So Israel, we want you to give them the land so they can get stronger. It's it's ridiculous. It's no different than Farrakhan, the black Muslim that says, you guys owe the black people because you kept us in slavery. You owe us some land. So give us Georgia and Tennessee so we can start our own country. And by the way, we hate America and we want to destroy it, so give us some property. You owe it to us. Now we look at Farrakhan and say, take a hike. We're not gonna, you know, hear you say that one of the reasons you exist is to destroy America, but you want us to give you a piece of America so you can have your own country. For what purpose? You know, it's it's bizarre. We see it clear enough for our own country. We're not gonna do that, but yet for Israel, The UN is basically insisting that they do this. Well, Israel's not going to do it because God's not going to allow it because God has given it to them and they're going to hang on to it. But we see there in Ezekiel chapter 38, the old hook is going to go in the mouth of Magog and Gog, Russia, the Soviet Union, and is going to pull them down, what? Oil. You know the Russian economy is more than belly up. People probably by the hundreds of thousands are going to starve to death in Russia this winter. We're trying to make some agreements with Russia. They won't make them with us. We are ready to give them enough food to keep them alive for the winter, but the Russia won't agree to the terms. Uh, we're, ask, we're asking of them. Nobody knows exactly what those terms are, but mainly take your missiles <laughs> and quit pointing them at us, you know, uh, would be a part of it. And so um, Egypt and some of the more heavily Muslim countries, I believe, will offer Russia heavy supply of oil and so forth if they will back them up as they go down to fight against Israel. And their Iraq is going to be pulled down. Iran is going to be pulled down. So the Iraqi thing has to be over. Um, You can read about there in the scriptures. Kuwait doesn't go. That's the one country that doesn't go. And they're all pulled down there to Israel. And then five-sixths of the Russian army is destroyed. And all those nations that go with them are also destroyed. So it's a pretty interesting time we live in. But one thing for sure is we want to be on Israel's side. And I'll tell you right now, push push comes to shove. Clinton will not be behind Israel. Clinton has made continued anti-Israeli statements. And he's saying he's for peace and so forth, but he is not for Israel. And uh, I say the time may very well come that he says UN troops, American UN troops join to go down and fight against Israel. And I say to you, get ready. We're going to Canada or something. I, I don't know, but I do not want to be a part of a country that's fighting against Israel, and I really uh, am gonna draw a line there. And uh, don't know exactly what I'll do. I'd love to go over and fight for it with Israel. You know, put on an Israeli uh, soldier outfit. And that'd be great. That would be a lot of fun. You know, we're going to be on the winning team. So, well, anyway, we'll talk more about that New Year's Eve. But here, anyway. So concerning the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, even though they hate the Christians right now. In verse 29, For the gifts and the God are irrevocable. I love this verse. God's gifts, God's callings never change. Now, remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. What does it say? It says that we are called unto salvation. That salvation is a calling. We have been called and we're given a gift of salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourself. It's a what? Gift of God. I love this. So we say, but Brian, I'm weak. I'm rebellious. I struggle very much as a Christian. And what do we say? Look at God's dealing with Israel. Read Psalms 106. As there they sacrificed their babies unto demons many times, God continued to forgive them, taking them out of their captivity, bringing them back into the promised land, taking them out of captivity, bringing them back into the promised land, time and time again, until they, had, they were so long in captivity they forgot who God was. But God, in His mercy, sent them a prophet to remind them who they were, who he was, so he could forgive them and restore them once again. What do we see? The people completely reject their Messiah. So what does God do? He says, I'll just make you jealous by saving a bunch of Gentiles. And then the Jews get more and more jealous, and then the rapture of the church, now they're really jealous. And he says, okay, then I'll save you. And the last period before planet Earth as we know it is, God is going to spend seven years saving His people. There's one thing you can count on, and that is the faithfulness of God. As Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when we are not faithful, He remains faithful because He can't deny Himself. That is just His nature. But you say, I struggle. Man, I'm just so sinful sometimes. Well, we talked about that back in Romans chapter 7. But we see it throughout the whole Old Testament where you got guys like Samson who were sinful. And boy, did he mess up his life. Boy, did he have tragedy. As sin always brings hardship and tragedy, it always does. That's why we don't want to sin, not because God's going to throw us away. God's not going to throw us away at all, ever. We don't want to sin because God has a plan and a purpose and we don't want to mess that up. But also, because we love God, we want to be all that we can to glorify Him. But yet, does that mean if we struggle and fall that God's given up on us? No, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Those blessings that God, how God wants to use your life, when you get through your rebellious stage, He'll be there for you. When you get done sinning, his hand will be outstretched one time more for you. As you see with Israel all day long, my hands are outstretched towards you. But we look at Samson and how he lived after the flesh, a life after the flesh. But God's power was still there for him. His gifts were still there for him. And there he was around the grape. Then he was around the dead. And then finally, as you remember with Delilah, he cut his hair. And what happened? He was overpowered by sin. Sin blinded him and binded him and grinded him and he suffered for years and years. He never was able to have children. He was never able to have a family. He had nothing but hardship, blindness, pain, suffering, humiliation. Most of his life, why? Because that's what sin does. It blinds, it binds, it grinds, it humiliates, it wastes our life. As Satan here is trying to kill, steal, and destroy, so he often can, even upon Christian's life, He can cause havoc. We don't want to sin. But if we do sin, we can always know that God is there for us. Samson knew right away. As he was there in those two pillars, he cried out once again, God, strengthen me again. He knew the Lord would hear him. He knew that God would strengthen him. And there he pulled down those pillars and he killed more in his death than he had done in his life. Those gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But what's it say? He came and got him and took him away and buried him in Israel, which is a sign as we go through the Old Testament. It's a sign that he's right with God. When they buried them with their fathers, that was a sign that they were right with their God. How was Samson right with God? Because of the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God chose Samson. God loved Samson. Well, Didn't seem like God was able to use him very well. You're right. He didn't. No doubt Samson will have a beautiful white robe of righteousness in heaven, but not much more. Far as rewards, probably close to zilch, because he never lived to the glory of God. But he was still God's man, and God hung on to him and used him to the end. But you don't understand, Brian. I can get rebellious, and it's not just doing the wrong things, often I get rebellious and don't do the right things. Sort of like Jonah. Jonah was a guy like that. God said, go to Nineveh, and Jonah got on a boat and went in the opposite direction. He was going to Tarsus as far as he could away from the perfect will of God for his life. But you see, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, and God started a storm, as you remember, and the guys threw Jonah overboard, and a big fish, it says, that was prepared ahead of time by God, which is pretty radical. It's the same understanding of predestined. There was this big fish years earlier that was created for this very instance to be there when Jonah was going through one of those struggling, rebellious times. And there the fish was as Jonah's thrown overboard and he has that Jewish delight. He swallows him up. Now, I would have been one second in the belly of that fish and I would have been repentant all over the place. But not Jonah. He's cramped, he's you know suffocating, he's got seaweed around him and he's turning white from the acidic juices of this fish's stomach as he's basically being digested. And he, I'm not going to do it. For three days and three nights, I'm not going to do it. But the whole time, you see, the fish is swimming. (laughs) The whole time, the fish is going in the direction God wants Jonah to go. And so finally, Jonah says, Okay. And God says, I thought you would say that. He throws them all up on the beach. Right where he needed to go. That's grace. That's mercy. And God's able to use it, you see. Jonah goes in, smelling all stinky and all white, bleached out, saying, Repent. <laughs> and here's these fishermen coming in, saying, We saw the biggest fish we ever saw in our life. He's up on the shore. He just threw this guy up. And it's, it's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. So people came out by flocks to see this fish, to see the barf, to see Jonah, to see him all white, and said, We better Repent. The greatest revival that ever happened. I'm so glad that we don't have a hold of God and we have to hang on, because there's so many times I let go. I'm wicked. I'm sinful. I'm weak, and I let go. And you know what I discover? That God has a hold of me. I thought for so long I've got to dig in. You know, I've got to put my nails right into his wrist, you know, and hang on. And as I start to get weak, I just say, you got to hang on. And then I realize I can completely let go and God has a big fish prepared to swallow me up. God loves us. His gifts in the calm Did you say, no, I'm weak. There's sometimes times I just, out and out, am ready to deny him. You mean like Peter who said, I never knew the man and started swearing up a storm like a, Fisherman? A sailor? Yeah, that's. Peter just said, Curse, and I never knew the guy, and cursed and swore and cursed this poor little girl out. And what did he say? Forget it. Forget the whole Jesus thing. It's three years of my life I want to forget about. And he went back to fishing. And remember there why he was fishing, Jesus comes. He doesn't know it's Jesus and says, Hey, how's it going? And you know a fisherman is discouraged when he says, I've caught nothing. I've never found a fisherman that didn't at least say, the big one got away, you know. But Peter's just, he's just, I have nothing, man. Not even a bite, not even a nibble, nothing. And Jesus, Jesus says, oh, well, have you tried the other side of your boat? And there they got this giant haul of fish. The boat begins to sink, you see. Grace and mercy, God's loving kindness and tender mercies. And Peter jumps right out of that boat and swims right to shores. I don't care about those fish in that boat. Let them sink. And he swims right to Jesus, you see. His gifts, his calling. What do you say to Peter? What are you fishing for? You're supposed to be a shepherd now. Feed my sheep. Stop the fishing. I've told you to leave those nets. And God will work with us as He's worked with Samson. Samson. As he worked with Jonah, as he worked with Peter. Although we may be sinful, although we may be rebellious, although we may be weak, God's gifts, God's callings are irrevocable. We're called unto salvation, you see. We're given salvation as a gift. And those things, because God has done them, like we read in Isaiah, I, this is my covenant with them. And this is God's covenant with you. That He has you in His, his hand. He says there and John 6, all who come unto me it's because my Father drew you. Nobody can come unto me unless my Father draws them. And all who come unto me, I will in no wise cast any out. All who come unto me are in my hand, he says in John 10, and of them I lose none, but will raise them up on the last day. How many does he cast out? None. How many does he lose? None. And boy, am I thankful for that, because if he said most, I'm dead. <laughs> I know if there's any small percentage, even if it's a 0.0000001%, I'm in it. I know me. I'll end up, although there's a small remnant that can mess it up, I'll be the one to mess it up. I guarantee it. But I'm so thankful that God, in His grace and His mercy. And so if you doubt this, if you struggle with this, go back and read the Old Testament and say, how has God dealt with the children of Israel? And then he goes on and says in verse 30, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now obtain mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. So what do we discover? That they were disobedient, but it opened the door up of mercy to the Gentiles. And so we're saved because they disobeyed. Gee, think about that. Israel, even when they're rebellious, they still bless the world. Even when they're rejecting their Messiah, they're still blessing the world. Remember they said to Jesus, show us a sign. And he said, it's a wicked and perverse generation that asks for a sign. I'll give you a sign. Here's a sign. Just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. What is he able to do? He's able to use Jonah's rebelliousness as a type, as an example of his death for you and me. What do we have now as an example? The faithfulness of God towards the Jews is God's faithfulness towards us. But what if we sin? What if we struggle? What if we become disobedient? God will still be there for us and he will turn all things around for good. Now, if you're here tonight and you say, wow, this is great news because I was thinking of going out and partying with my friends afterwards tonight and I wasn't sure if I'd still go to heaven if I went and got high or drunk. But you've made it clear to me, Brian, I can go out and get high and drunk. Well, I would say read Peter because Peter says that there's those people who teach liberty only because they want to live after the flesh and he says these are the type of guys that are like pigs after they've been cleaned off go back into the slop or like dogs after they've thrown up they go back and eat their throw up that thing that made them sick and will make them sick again they just forget about it they go wow mm, go, mm, smells good i'll go eat it again and And then they get all sick again, and they throw it up again because there's something wrong with it, you see, but they forget about it, and they go back and... Mmm, man. And they eat it again, and they, they, they keep forgetting. And Peter basically says if you can go back to the vomit, you can go back to the slop, it's because you're not a sheep. You're a pig or a dog, but you're not a sheep. If you truly become a sheep, you follow the shepherd. And Jesus says, all those who hear my voice, they follow me. And so if your heart is inclined not to follow the Lord, it's because you probably don't know the Lord. Now, I hear about God's goodness and His mercy, and you know what it does to me? One, it comforts my heart. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that God only wants love. He doesn't want any other motive but love. So if you give all your goods to the poor, but you have not love, it profits you nothing and you are nothing. If you study until you know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and but it's not because you love the Lord, it's because you're trying to earn your way to salvation or make yourself right with God or make sure you maintain your rightness with God, it profits you nothing. God has to take all other motives away except for one, I just love Him. And so He's basically come and disarmed us, you see, By saying, even if you're disobedient, I'll turn it around for good. Even if you're weak, I'll still stand by you. Even if you start sending up a storm, I'll be there with you to help you and encourage you. And and once you come out of that, like the prodigal son's dad, I'll be there running to you and grabbing you and hugging you and loving you. And For me, one, it just says, I'm set. (laughs) He loves me and his love is going to take me to heaven. And I know I'm going to be there, not because I'm great. But what it also does, it motivates me extremely to want to know Him more and to really want to serve Him. Now, if that is your heart tonight, you're a born-again believer. That God has taken all of your fear and your anxiety away about eternal life. You know for sure that you have the gift of eternal life by His work and His grace, His mercy, His love. Wow. But if you say, I can use this, I can manipulate this piece of information so I can live after the flesh, I fear for you. Because the old things haven't passed away and everything hasn't become new. You see, when you're a born-again believer, your heart just changes. All the old things pass away, all things become new. And so now... I sin, but I hate it. When I was non-Christian, you see, I sinned and I loved it. I bragged about it. You know, people will say, man, I drank this much. I smoked this much. I, you know, was able to talk about their sexual conquest. You see, they, they brag about it. But now that I'm born again, you see, I sin. I'm grieved over it. And if sin doesn't grieve you, you're not born again. And if the thought of going out and sinning excites you, I fear for you. Because I may fantasize about sinning for a few minutes and then I grieve that my mind was ever distracted. As David says, you know, even let the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you. And so I'm thankful that God has us. He's not going to let us go. For those of you who are true born-again believers. But in no way has He given us a license to sin. But if you do sin, He's there for you. If you've been struggling over these last few months, God will turn it around for good. Give Him time. Have hope. Have joy. Have peace. Look to Him. Don't ever leave Him because He's never going to leave you. I love that verse in Titus chapter 3. We've got to look at it because it's such a wonderful verse. And it expresses so clearly what we're saying. It's right after Timothy and then that little book Titus. And in chapter three, verse three, he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish and disobedient. You see, we once in the past, not presently, hopefully we were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. That sounds like before Christ, doesn't it? But. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. So some say, you also got to be baptized. You also have to speak in tongues. You also have to be a church member. And we say, no way, no how. The thief on the cross did nothing. His hands, his feet were tied. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's not by any works, any righteous works, any kind of works at all. Not one jumping jack, not one push up, not anything we can do, no baptism, nothing saves us, but the work of Christ and him alone. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You might want to memorize those verses, folks. It's not by our works, but it's by the mercy and the grace and the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit that He poured out on us abundantly. And He justified us how by His grace and He made us heirs at that moment of eternal life. What's John 3.16 say? that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him is put on a probationary period for over five years. Once baptized, once church member, once speaks in tongues, once he has led three people to the Lord, then he can be recommended for the possibility of eternal life. That's not what it says, does it? It says that the moment you believe upon him, you shall never perish, but you shall have everlasting life. Sounds like a pretty guarantee. It didn't say maybe, it said shall not. King David, after he blew it with Bathsheba, remember, he sinned, committed adultery, murdered her husband. It wasn't too long after that that he penned Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me by the still waters. He restores my soul. David's soul was damaged and hurt from adultery and murder. But he felt the Lord beginning to heal his soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Remember, Nathan came to him and told him that elaborate story. And David saw his sin and said, I have sinned. In the same verse, he says, you've also been forgiven. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His own name's sake. He's a shepherd. The shepherd has a responsibility for the sheep. And then He finally ends that psalm by saying, Surely His goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I hope with my fingers crossed that I shall... No, it's not what He says. He says, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He was confident even though He had been an adulterer, even though He had been a murderer... He was confident that God had him in his hand, that God's goodness and mercy would be there all the days of his life. And he would, without any doubt whatsoever, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're not saved by our goodness, but by God's. We have no righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. But we have his righteousness. And then the Bible says in Ephesians 5, he maintains his righteousness by the washing of the water of the word that he might present unto himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And if you read in the Greek, it's emphatic. He washes us. We're his bride. He is going to present us before himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish. You see, this is the covenant that he's made with you. What's the covenant we've made with him? We believe it. I believe God is all that he says he is. And that is accounted unto us as righteousness. Well, we go on tonight in verse 32. For who? For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So God has actually preordained ahead of time knowing that they would be disobedient and shut them on up in their disobedience. So as Israel hardened their heart, God confirmed their hardness as we talked about in Romans chapter 9. Why? Why? that they would go ahead and not just sort of not believe in the Messiah, but would really, really, really not believe in the Messiah, that mercy might come to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So as he begins to think about this intricate plan, how God would use the Jews and demonstrate His faithfulness and His love and His mercy and His kindness and His, and his election of them. And, and then they would reject them. He saw that. He knew they had hardened, so He went ahead and confirmed their hardness. And then He saw the door of the Gentiles opening up. And then the Gentiles, as they're struggling and fumbling around, could look to the Jew, Israel and we look at them as an example. But of course, they would need to not be ignorant of the things to come and the tribulation period and understand how God's faithfulness would be there to the end. And then as we realize, going, yeah, right now they're enemies, but the church needs to realize they're still precious, even though they're enemy. And he just starts looking at the intricate and how all of this, like a rug, is just sort of woven all together and smoke starts coming out Paul's ears. <laughs> the gears just start grinding and he just realizes this is Infinite. It goes on and on and on and on. And I, it's just unbelievable. You know, there, there's times I get that way. I'll, I'll have a bug crawling up my arm. And I just look at that thing going, You designed that thing, God. All those little feet, you know. Look at those little hairs. You, you know, every hair on that little bug. It's amazing. Look at the eyes. Look at the little whisker. Look at how the little body works, and it's just amazing to me. Or you look at the birds and the color of the, the wings, or look at the types of beaks they have, or, or just look at the grass. Just It blows my mind. Green, the color green, just blows my mind. God, you invented green. You came up with green. Or to look at the waves or look at the magnetic pull of the earth and how it keeps the oceans clean or how God keeps moving the H2O around the earth, you know, puts in this big old giant ice packs up on the top of the mountains until it starts getting hot down in the valley and then he just lets it start coming on down. So we get this nice cool water that's been there solid all winter. Now just when we really need it the most, here it comes. And you just start looking at how incredible it is. God is is magnificent. And now you look at how he deals with Israel and how he deals with us. Oh, it's just incredible. And in verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? I have. You guys been his counselor before? It doesn't work, does it? God, let me tell you, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to do it. And here's the time period. Please get that done. Report to my secretary on Monday. And it um, <laughs> doesn't work with God. Or who is first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. So who does God owe? God owes nobody. He's given far more. It says in Romans 1, nobody's going to have an excuse before God just because of creation itself is a clear enough diagram who God is and of the Godhead. Nobody. Does God, is God a debtor too? Now, I love this in particular because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive in Acts chapter 20. But the Bible also tells us when we give unto God that it's His opportunity now to give back unto us far, far more. And so again, that principle of tithing and offering, here it is again. Who's going to give to God that God's going to let them owe? And then we see that Also there in Revelation chapter 4, before the coming of Christ, we see the saints putting on the incense and it says, which are the prayers of the saints. God's not going to owe any prayers. He's going to burn them all up. He's going to answer all those prayers before He comes. So pray a whole bunch of them. Well, it hasn't been answered. It will be. Pile them up, man, before He comes again. So I think as we read there, there's this outpouring in the last days of His Holy Spirit. I think a lot of it is just prayers God's just storing up to answer all at once. Pray, folks. Pile them up. Because God, when they're according to his perfect will, he answers them in his timing. But pile them up. In the same way, on that day, we're going to be rewarded before him for all that we've done for him. He, He can't be a debtor to us, you see. That's why we're storing up our treasures in heaven. Give all that you can. Say all that you can. Love all that you can. Pray all that you can. Why? Because God can be not a debtor to any man. He has to repay us. And so I love that fact that God will not be indebted, but he always gives far, far more. And then finally, verse 36. I know you guys want this to keep going for another couple of hours, but we have to end. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It all intertwines around Christ. It all intertwines around Him, you see. It's of Him and to Him and through Him and for Him. Go home and read tonight Revelation chapter 5 and see that heavenly scene once again. And there before the throne we sing that same song. You created it. It was for you that you created it. It was for your good pleasure that we're created. I love it. All of this shows God's nature. All of this shows His thinking. All of this shows His ways. And we have the great joy of discovering God. Discovering His thoughts. Discovering His heart. Discovering His mind. Discovering His love. Discovering all about Him. I love it. When God says, seek my face, David says, all my soul said, Lord, Your face will I seek. There, Paul, in his prayers to the Philippian church, the church at Ephesus and the church at Colossus, all of them says to grow in the knowledge of Him. Why? Because it's so fruitful. It's so wonderful. Well, Lord, there's so much more that we could talk all a night long about who You are and Your thoughts and Your hearts and Your ways. Wow, You're so good to us. And we revel tonight, Lord in your great grabbing hold of us. We revel tonight in your great calling of us. We revel tonight in the great gift that you've given unto us of your Son and of the salvation that he's brought to us. With everybody's head bowed, if you're here tonight and you need to have Christ come into your life, right now just pray, Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner and my sins have separated me from you but I want to know You. I want to know of Your love and Your forgiveness, of Your mercy. I want to be received into Your everlasting habitation. Come into my life. Forgive me, Lord, for living my own self-centered, self-way, not letting You be the Lord of my life. You truly are Lord and God and King. Put Yourself rightly at the throne of my life here tonight. Take the reins of my life. Be the Lord of all of me. Help me now as I begin to study your word. Show me who you are that I could follow you and love you and worship you.